listening to the Taming Hinges podcast. Conversations about self-awareness and mental health. We talk about anything and everything on the podcast. Real experiences, real life. Come get triggered. Welcome to another episode of the Taming Hindrances Podcast. My name's Phil, the host and creator of the podcast. And today's topic, as I usually start off with, the topic of the episode is mind. Last episode, we talked about body. This episode, we're going to talk about mind. And I want to take um, a couple different perspectives here. And actually, perspective is one of the topics because we've talked about that before, uh, back all the way back in episode 10. But... To get started, uh, I've said this many times throughout other episodes, if you haven't caught those or if you just missed it, mind is the second health body in antiquity. So when we talk about the alchemical sciences, if we talk about just ancient medicine, if we talk about Ayurvedic, if we talk about uh, Chinese traditional medicine to some extent, most old school or antique antiquity versions of medicine or ancient versions of medicine, specifically those uh, found in Egypt, have to do with, and this all comes from the mystery schools, have to do with the idea that there are three different health bodies. Those three different health bodies are the physical form in which you, you live in, the, the vehicle of the soul, if you want to talk to, about iamblichus, um, or you know, just the body, which we talked about last episode. And that's our, that's the physical form. It's the, the thing we walk around in. It's part of materium, the world we, you know, touch, feel, smell, all those things that happen. And then there's the uh, mind. And we're going to talk about that this episode. And then next episode, we'll talk about the other or the spiritual or whatever you want to call it. There's been all sorts of different names for it. But before I get into mind, which is what this episode is about, I want to talk about the vocabulary here. So I break it down as the physical, the mental, and the other, because I just, you know, I just don't put a term on the, the, the spiritual side of things, or again, whatever you want to call it, just the other. That isn't how it's usually written. Uh, there's multiple different names for everything. For others, some people say celestial, they might say astral. Typically, though, when they're talking, when the word astral comes up, that's actually talking about the mind. Uh, things like astral projection or just, you know, astral qualities, that's typically happening in the mind. So you might hear that term used. Um, you'll hear materia. Um, but if you hear prime materia or prima materia, that's actually talking about other. So it, it gets kind of complicated and it, it takes a little time to figure out what everything's being described as because the words are just thrown around willy-nilly like and that has to do a lot with you know when i talked about language and you know we talk about vocabulary way back in the beginning episodes of this podcast so part of being initiated which is um an episode that's coming probably after the other episode we'll talk about the initiates or the initiation which is something i've been through so you get initiated into the mystery schools and part of going into that, you, you learn there's, well, there's names that are just used for the, the heck of it, just used to, you know, kind of throw people off the path. 
There's names that are just used because that was, you know, the vernacular of the time. So you have to be very careful about the way in which you interpret the vocabulary, which is why I'm starting off with this explanation when we talk about mind, because that's the translation point. When we talk about the three health bodies, we talk about physical, we talk about mental, and the other, the, the mental, the or what would be referred to maybe as the astral, that's the translation point. That's the point where everything kind of gets translated between other and physical or physical to other. And, you know, Hermes Trismegistus, Thoth, whatever name you want to put on it, wrote, you know, um, the Emerald Tablet of Thoth or the great uh, Pyramander. That talks about one specific law, and that law is as above, so below. Well, as above, so below has been found in just about every religion in some form or factor because it works with this triality and the triality is the part where i find a lot of people get mixed up specifically when it comes to what we decipher as the mind now we'll get into a little bit more of this when i talk about initiation and the initiates or maybe you are an initiate or and you are on you know the path of the initiate or the uh, initiation there is a lot that goes into wrapping your head around all of this. And this is why I think these, particularly these three episodes here, uh, 22, 23, and 24, last episode, body, mind is 23, and then next episode, 24, will be other. It's the, it's the translation point. It's the middle ground in what I find to be the beginnings of self-awareness and mental health to whatever comes after it, whatever comes in like the, the, the intermediate level, the advanced levels, however you want to describe it. This is the part that a lot of people get stuck on and really never, ever get past or never choose to get past. It doesn't, you know, this isn't to say you have to grasp this. You have to understand this, but understanding this piece really is what opens up a lot of people to all of the other great pieces of knowledge out there, or just opens someone up to, how to think about these things. So um, consider this almost like a translation piece. And that translation piece, because we're talking about the mind and that's where all the translation happens, is that there are these three health bodies, as I described them. And this is all anecdotal through my own words in hopes that it will give understanding to someone else. Some people will just be like, Phil, you're a quack. I don't know what you're talking about. This is all BS and... I don't understand. Okay, I get it. That's fine. I'm just trying to put it in words that maybe other people might get. You might not be one of them. I'm sorry. My bad. Didn't know how to put it to you. It's part of a teacher's job to figure out different ways to put it. So I've tried different ways. And this is just kind of the culmination of all of that. So when we speak about mind, we're talking about the number two. And we're talking about the translation point between the number one, which is other, uh, most people will put a title on it of some sort. I'm just not going to what's called other, but spiritual God, whatever you want to call it. And then three and three is physical. Those are the trialities. One, other, two, mind, three, physical. Why does that matter? Because there's a fourth and that fourth is the, the second coming of two or the, the second iteration of two, because everything has to go as above, so below. So if one's at the top, if we, if we make a, a, a diagram here, we're going to put one at the top. We're going to put two at the bottom and then to your left-hand side, I'm sorry, one of the top three at the bottom to your left-hand side of two and to your right-hand side of four. So one, if we're going counterclockwise, one, two, three, four, 
we do it this way because if we look at some of the ancient texts and specifically those of the Kabbalistic rites, we find there's a an ineffable word. And the ineffable word is supposed to be a representation of other. It is the name for other. And if we've lost it to time, we don't know how to pronounce it. But because everything in Kabbalistic terms gets translated through numbers because every one of the Hebrew letters has a number corresponding to it. We get Yad, He, Vau, He. And I'm not pronouncing this correctly because I don't know the correct pronunciation and I don't think anybody knows the correct pronunciation. So I just pronounce them um, phonetically, how you would read them phonetically and how they're spelled. Yad, Y-O-D, that's one. Representation of other. He, H-E, that's the representation of the mind. Vau, V-A-U, that's the reputation of the physical. And then again, another he, H-E, that's the reputation of four because the second he, so we have to multiply it, it becomes two times two because there's two of them now, four. Why does this matter? Because when we look at things in this nature and you might read about things, you might read about the ineffable name, Yad, he, Vau, Yad, he, Vau, he, and you might find the Kabbalistic patterning for how to translate things to numbers and how all numbers get broken down to a singular digit. So if you had 10, it's one plus zero equals one. These are translations and these happen mentally. And this is why the mind is the most important part here because oftentimes that he will be talked about as astral. And when we think about the word astral, we think about, oh, Okay, like astral bodies, like, you know, the sun and the rest of the solar system and other galaxies and, you know, black holes and that, you know, stars, other astral objects. That's not the representation here. Astral, number two, is actually a representation of the mind. So when we have Yad, He, Thou, it's other mind, body. Remember, it goes counterclockwise. So one, two, three, four, counterclockwise. Then because we have a second He, that's what we mean by as above, so below. It's a, tr it's a transition point. It's if we had other, we have to translate it through the minds, one, two. And then to get to the physical, we go one, two, three. But then to get back to one again, we have to go back through the mind. So that's another he. So that's four. But because it's transitional, four becomes one in the next sequence. And this is super complicated and it doesn't make a lot of sense. But if you ever read Papoose and talking about the Tarot, um, just about any writer who writes about the Kabbalistic order uh, or the Kabbalistic um, understandings, or just to even understand Kabbalah in, in general, uh, you'll need to understand that there's these representations and everything gets a number. And why does that matter for the mind when we're talking about mental health and self-awareness? It's a very big point to make that the mind is represented as the transition point and also the translation point and is the point of return and extension for understanding both other and physical because they are separate from the mind here. We don't talk about in Kabbalah or in alchemy or any one of these other you know systems, um, even in stoicism really, when we talk about mental faculties or things that happen mentally, they're separate from the body. You know, people want to say stoicism is this understanding of oneself and to be stoic and to have control over one's mind and body. It's a separation. It's to understand that the 
body and the mind are separate. Not to control them. It's that the mind controls the body. Not the other way around. But the body refers to the mind. It must translate through the mind. So that's to say that someone who allows their anger to get control over them will lose control over their body, will be animalistic. That's one of the major points made in Stoicism. It's a major point made in Zen. Uh, it's a major point made in, I believe, I, you know, I, I'll, I was going to throw Jainism out there, but because they deal with karma and dharma and reincarnation, it gets a little funky. Um, but we'll use Zen and Stoicism because they're complementary of each other when we talk about these things. They talk about the differentiation of the animal mind and the what's considered the evolved mind or the what would be known as the human mind. Um, there's a separation of that control. The mind controls the body. When the mind loses control of the body, the body is now allowed to react however it wants. And that happens with, remember, last episode we talked about body and how the endocrine system with all your hormones and all that stuff works in the nervous system. If you piss the body off by poking it repeatedly or shocking it or causing pain to it, it's going to get mad. By mad, we just mean it's going to start an adrenal cortex response because it doesn't want to feel pain, so it needs to increase adrenaline. By doing so, it's going to increase cortisol, which is stress hormone, and that cortisol level is going to cause inflammation, and that inflammation is going to swell the body, and that's going to piss off a bunch of nerve endings because they're going to be like, why? I don't want to... You're pinching me and I'm not having this. What do we need to do to get out of this situation? Because the body just wants to survive. That's what it's doing. As I talked about in that, in the body episode, I liken the body to a coral reef. It's a bunch of organisms and bacteria. It's a bunch of things all living in complementary systems to each other. Without one piece, the whole thing would break down. You know, if your heart stops beating, you die. Because nothing in the system will get blood and that by that factor, it won't get oxygen and it can't do ATP production and things can't keep moving and surviving. So when we lose control of the body, the body now controls the mind. And that's really the major point. It's not so much to have control over mind and body. It's the control of the mind over the body. Because you don't, you don't lose control of Then I guess that's a poor way of putting it. Let's try a different method to make it a little bit simpler. You don't lose the connection between that's that stays happening. Unless I mean you sever your spinal column, which is a whole different story. Um, which is that would be a, a physical separation still. Okay. That's actually, a, we can go with that. So you don't lose the connection between the mind and body. You lose control over one or the other and thus give control in respect either way. So if I have an emotional response in Stoicism or in Zen, we would actually be saying instead of having your emotional response is a loss of control over the body. You're allowing your endocrine system, your nervous system, all of the systems of the body to make you react instead of interpreting that information and then reacting rationally or logically. So by that definition, you're, you're losing the 
the not you're not losing the connection you're just losing control over one or the other and they're kind of they're kind of in in cahoots with each other they're kind of it's you know bisympathetic so when we talk about loss of function though that is the severing of the the connection and that's a whole different thing but that's not what zen talks about that's not what stoicism talks about that's not even what ayurvedic um talks about when they specifically talk about um medicinal use of herbs and, and those types of things if we go all the way back through history humans as we are today through evolution have been using mushrooms and peyote and tobacco and all these other different herbs and plants and things to create different mental states that is a practice of not specifically severing the connection but applying a like a break in between so that the mind can be freed from controlling the body this is why the vocabulary here is, is kind of wishy-washy but really important to understand because it's put different ways all the time like i said number two in kabbalah is represented as astral well astral is really mind but most people think oh that's other because that's you know planets and stuff that's why I bring all this up. But going back to the, the one, two, three, four, that whole transition back to four, four then becomes the next one in the sequence. And then we have four, five, six, and then seven, seven becomes the next one in the sequence. Then we have seven, eight, nine, ten, And that's how we get from one to 10. And then remember 10 is again, one, because one plus zero equals one. That's it. We always reduce everything to the simplest number possible. You could start with a million six to six hundred thousand twelve. You just reduce it to the, you add all the numbers across and then reduce it and reduce it to get to whatever number. And the, each number has a representation. Blah 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 blah. Where are you going with this, Phil? This is because the mind is the translation point. That's the most important thing we have to understand about our minds. It is literally just a translation point. It is the shaping of and the understanding of everything else that's going on in both materium and other. The mind is constantly working, constantly doing things. It is an amalgamation of tissue and electrical storms and all sorts. It's just a fascinating thing we've created. This, this mind that we use regularly and that mind is the translation point. And if we talk about the physical, yeah, okay, you have this thing known as the two hemispheres of the of the brain matter. And then you have the hippocampus and prefrontal cortex. You have all the different pieces, and we can break it down as much as you want. And then we have the blood-brain barrier, which is a made of synovial fluid that keeps the brain all kind of squishy and fluided and just happy in there with nutrients. That's all the physical. Think about what the mind actually does regularly. It translates things. It translates the physical body touching things. It translates the eyes seeing things, the nose, all the, old, the olfactory system, the ocular system, our taste buds. So it, it translates all our senses into an understanding. A good representation of this is when we think about computers. Most computers nowadays have a GUI, a graphical user interface. 
uh, most people just call that your desktop and you know the start button and you know this is what word looks like and this is what my web browser looks like and you know behind the scenes there's a cpu and a graphics card and a bunch of other and ram sticks random access memory sticks doing all these translations like the mind does and then turning them into a gui a gui graphical user interface that we get to mess around with it's the, it's the same thing of like using a camera on your phone or even using a mirror is a very good representation of what I'm talking about. That is a, a GUI. If you look at yourself in the mirror, that's a graphical user interface. You know, we don't poke it and slide left and all that. You know, we don't do all that kind of stuff, but it's the translation of, oh, okay, I can touch my face. I can, you know, maybe... I can trim my beard. I can do my hair and it gives us the representation. What we're really looking at though, is the mind translating all of the input from the ocular, our, um, I think it's prefrontal cortex. And then there's also, you have little crystals in your ear that make up your equilibrium. It does all these calculations to go, okay, on a mirror, if I reach my left hand out, it's that's it's the it's the mirrored image. That mirror creates the image, and then our brain figures out. Oh, okay. You ever watch a, if, a really good thing to do is if you ever see a, a kid use a mirror for the first time. It's not exactly like we don't just get it, you know, or the mirrored surface of the water as our ancestors would have used. It takes a, a second there to be like. Okay. All right. Everything's, we expect it to be one way, but it's backwards, but not really backwards. And then this, oh, this is an image. This is the image of me. This is the physical image of me. And because that translation is so delicate, we can often end up with things that are in the realm of clinical psychiatry and what we know as major depressive disorder. Like I said, I, I talk about it the other side of things. I don't talk about the psychiatry. I'm not a doctor. I cannot diagnose or prescribe. I'm not a professional in any way. I'm just an idiot on the internet. Do your own research. Think for yourselves. I'm just here to put it one way that might make sense to somebody. Maybe not everybody, but we'll hopefully give somebody a, a better understanding of what's going on in that noggin, in that mind space, the translation point. When we look at a mirror, it's very common that we can end up with things like what would be clinically diagnosis body dysmorphia because there's a break of the translation. We only see one thing and this, this analogy of using the mirror and how that's like the computer system. Your brain is the computer system creating the image you're seeing in the mirror and we can, we can dysmorph it. That's what body dysmorphia is. You can look at yourself and be like, I'm ugly. I'm fat. I'm, you know, Oh, I'm going bald. I'm losing my hair. Uh, my eyes are disgusting. Uh, you know, blah, blah, it, the, the, it's limitless what we can come up with when we come up with the translations. Whereas one person might say, Oh, you look this way. Another person might say, Oh, you look this way. That's because it's a translation. And that translation is specifically designed to work in the mind. It's taking in all sorts of other information and it's translating it. Because in order for you to feel like you're fat, you have to have a reference. Either once you were skinny and now you're heavier, or you know someone who's super skinny and you're not, or 
you know, your family's this way and you look this other way, you have to have a reference point. This is what I talk about when I talk about duality. Two sides of the same coin. All duality is triality. Skinny and fat are the same side of a coin. It's an idea of weight in visual reference. We can use objectivity or subjectivity. And most people, when we're talking about looking at yourself in the mirror, are using subjectivity, not objectivity. We're not using any measurements. I'm not getting the, you know, the, the um, tape measure out and measuring my waist and then, you know, waiting six months and measuring it again and looking at the differentiation of the measurements. No, you're simply looking at like pinching your skin and like, oh, I'm getting fat or, and to be honest, you can use this. And I'll get into that a little bit later about how we can start making, we can start using tricks of the mind of the translation. If we think about it the way, you got to think about it as a translation to make some things happen that we might want to happen. But before we get to that, let's just talk about some of the translation pieces that happen with mind and how we can take a little bit different of a perspective. We can use that idea of perspective to even start this conversation. And again, I talked about perspective back in, uh, episode 10, it's one of the things that is an amalgamation of subjectivity of our translation. We get to decide it often though. It's taken away from us and we're given, we're, we're led down or coerced into different perspectives when in truth, we are the creators of our perspectives you are the computer creating the graphical user interface, be it from looking at a color and thinking it's periwinkle to looking at another color and thinking it's, it's fuchsia where you decide that you are the decision maker of the perspective. You are the decision maker of the graphical user interface of the representation of what our ocular functions see, what our physical corpuscles touch and feel what our um, olfactory system smells, what our taste buds like, you know, we'll get into taste because that's a super important one to kind of get an, a, a reference of all this. But even in the function of memory, again, when we're talking about looking at ourselves in the mirror, you might remember yourself one way and are looking at something completely different, but your reference point might be that memory. And that memory might be completely inaccurate because every time you recall a memory in your mind, you actually just pull up a, a an image of it. You're just making a copy of that image. And over time that will degrade. Memory is an interesting thing to get into. And it's too broad of a, well, not broad, but too specific of a topic actually with too much depth, I should say, to get into in just this one episode. But if you look at how memory function works, we're slowly finding out things about it. And as I said about in the body episode, we don't know everything. We don't know everything there is to know about the body yet. We don't know everything to know about the mind yet. We're constantly learning new things. But one of the things we have kind of figured out is memory recall typically requires us to make a copied image of that memory, be it auditorial, olfactory, which is smell, ocular, which is a, a visual image. And then by making the copy, we recall it. And every time we make a copy, it gets slightly more grainy it gets slightly more less sharp it, the colors fade a little bit the it just constantly and then what a lot of people find depending on each individual now again this is individual so you th again think about perspective and how the mind works translation piece as we translate that copy over and over and over and over again 
we might lose different pieces of it, but everybody else loses a different other piece. So if we gave people the same image, the same image, the same smell, the same taste, all of the things we can make memories of, each person might lose a different piece as they recall it over and over again. Some, somebody might not be a smell person, which is kind of atypical because a lot of memory is based on the olfactory system because of where it's located, right? Your nose is right in the front there by the prefrontal cortex, which is where memories start. And then we throw them in the back of the brain later. Again, we're still learning about all these things, but that idea of memory is the differentiation of translation. Some people like to translate things through their eyes. Some people like to translate it through uh, ocular, sorry, eyes, um, olfactory. They like to transfer it through their nose or smell. Some people like to translate it through hearing, which is, you know, maybe a verbal. So hearing the verbal statements, some people translate through touch. So those are the typical people who tend to lose the copy quicker because if it's through a, a touch sensation, they might recall everything else, but like really it's just the sense touch that they're um, recalling. So a lot more things can have that similarity. Yeah, super complicated, really interesting topic that get, you can get really in depth with. And I highly recommend because a lot of people ask me like, Oh, Phil, how do you remember all this stuff? I spent a lot of time studying how the human memory works and how then studying a lot about how my memory works, which was part of me learning about mind after I learned about body to get better memory recall, to get better memory function, to start putting little pieces. You know, if you've ever seen those boards with the pins in it and people pull the string and they wrap one string and then they attach it somewhere else, putting all those things together. That takes time to learn how your, your memory works and how you can better use memory recall functions and, you know, different things that make that all more effective. But moving on. We have memory, we have emotion. Here's a huge one, emotion. Going back to stoicism, going back to Zen, those are two practices in which we try to not eliminate emotion. I find a very uh, a very big mistake made commonly in any Zen or stoic practice is to eliminate emotion. We're not trying to eliminate emotions. We're trying to understand them. We're trying to use them. We're trying to get a better control over them. That's like saying, if we use the computer analogy, Zen and Stoicism and, you know, other, a lot of meditation practices, to be honest, are, well, remember, meditation is just awareness of breath, but the thought processes that happen during meditation, which is where most meditation systems come from, those systems are often using mental practices translation practices to better understand or have a better control over emotion, not eliminate them. A stoic only appears stoic. It's just an appearance. Their mind is racing. Usually someone who likes to be stoic by nature. I'm someone who just generally is stoic by nature. My mind is going burr. It's just going crazy. Just there's all sorts of, process is happening. My face though, and my body language, nothing's happening. I'm just relaxed. Generally, you know, chill, no issues. There's, that's the differentiation. A lot of people are like, Oh, we're Zen. I tend, I tend to be more Zen than I am stoic. I just don't react. That's how Zen is. Zen just doesn't react unless it has to. That's the practice. If I'm breaking it all down and I'm making it oversimplified as I usually do, 
to be Zen natured is to not react unless you have to. It's to always be in balance, right? So we're, we're constantly seeking balance. And if I react immediately, quickly, probably for a reason, that reason is probably because there's something that's either going to like run me over and kill me and I need to like get out of the way or someone else is in trouble or this, that, and the other thing. A, a Zen practitioner is seeking control of mind and body all the time. But specifically, there's they're seeking that transition piece. When I when I talked about that connection, the connection of mind body, that's what they're seeking control over. That the body never gets control of the mind, and the mind always has some level of control, but they're in harmony of each other. They're in balance. So that if I don't want to move and someone burns me, I won't move. It's not that I don't feel the pain, not that I don't want to hit that person because they burn me for no reason. It None of those things happen. It's just I don't move because I'm in control of the body. Vice versa to that, if I feel the sensation and I don't want to be burned, I have a quicker reaction to move my hand away or whatever, you know, thing is. Um, this is the reason most Zen practitioners, if you've ever met like a true, like a really good Zen practitioner, I am not one, but those who have studied Zen and really practiced the art of Zen and all of its faculties and meditations and, and just awareness pieces, they're almost like precognitive. It's almost like they know something's happening before it's happening. That's why we get this mystical idea of these Zen practitioners that just like, how do they know that? They just moved out of the way. They have heightened their senses and awareness of that connection between the mind, again, connection between the mind and body so much that they feel precognitive to you because they know what's about to happen before you do because they've already processed. They've already been down through the thousand scenarios. That's uh, one of the things, one of those Zen meditations is to ponder on scenario of something. Um, I can't pick one of the canonical writings because I don't remember them all that well, but that's part of process. Like you would read one of the canonical writings, which is the Mahayana or Vishnahana. If it's Zen, most likely it's the lesser canon, the Vishnahana. Although I might have those backwards. I apologize if I do. I usually do get them backwards. But in the canonical writings, specifically, we'll just use Vishnahana. I'm going to go with I'm going to commit. If we read one of the canonical writings of the Vishnahana, in the Vishnahana, one of those canonical writings is probably a story of some sort of import that provides a thought cycle it, it, the 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 writing is designed to you to put yourself in the story and to process all of the different things that could happen that's the bagaha the bagaha if if anyone's ever read that or knows about it the bagaha Gita is part of the canonical writings of the mahayana and I believe the Vishnana, don't quote me on that one, but it's part of the canonical writings of Buddhism and, or has been added to since it gets complicated between the Vishnana and the Mahayana, but I consider the Bhagavad Gita part of the writings. It's a great read. Read it if you haven't. It's a conversation. This might ruin it for some, but it's a conversation between Krishna and a prince. That's the whole thing. But the prince doesn't know they're speaking to Krishna. 
the god Krishna from um, the one of the Hindu gods Krishna. So this prince goes through this whole thing, like learning all these lessons and talking and, and talking about stories and interactions. And the whole point of the book is to put yourself in the place of the prince and have no idea you're talking to Krishna. And then once you learn at the very end of the book, and I know I'm ruining it for some, but you'll, it doesn't ruin it all that much because at the end of the book, it reverses it. And then the whole thought process is to think about, to, to have this essentially mental process, be the CPU, be the RAM and the computer and process all these things of what about if you were in the position of Krishna, would you have hidden yourself? Would you not have when have one, when have you have revealed yourself? It just gets into this whole thought process thing. It's simulation. And that's what a lot of the canonical writings in Buddhism are about. And specifically when we talk about the Zen canons, again, the, the Vishnahata, the lesser canon, which is where Zen Buddhism comes from, not Chan Buddhism, which comes from the greater canons, the Mahayana. The Zen practices had a bunch of these stories. And it was very often that a Zen practitioner would just be sat down by the master and be like, did you read this story? What did you get out of it? And they might make you go through 100, 200, 300. They might make you come up with as many outcomes as you possibly could have because it's the simulation thereof. And that's the connection between mind body. It's the, tr it's the, what we find to be like that, that feeling that someone's precognitive. They just knew this was going to happen or they reacted before anything even happened. It's because they've spent hours upon hours upon hours simulating things happening. So they just get used to walking in a room Mapping the room, mapping the people, mapping the feel, mapping the, you know, airflow. They just get used to being so sensitive to all of the things around them that they come up with a, here's the most logical or most reasonable thing that's about to happen. And they're prepared. They don't react to, but they prepare to react to that in order of hierarchy. So they might pick out the top 10 things that might happen and they're just ready for it to happen. It's a weird way to live sometimes because I do it a lot. Cause that's how I was taught in my martial training. That was part of training mind was just the act of watching someone do a martial arts form or watching a fight. It's different for a martialist and sometimes different for a martial artist. Maybe they haven't realized this yet, but there's a reason you do these things. You watch others practice, you watch others train. And then specifically when you're teaching, this might give away one huge secret. Everyone's going to get pissed off me about the reason in martial arts. It's very important to become a teacher in the end. When you become a black belt, that teaching is to understand simulation. It's great. If you can master how your body learns, that's every belt from white all the way up to black. That first black belt you receive is all about mastering yourself, how your body moves, how your mind works. It's all about self-awareness and mastery over that, that connection between mind and body. After that, every sequence of belt after that has nothing to do with that anymore. It has everything to do with learning about other people, how their bodies move, how they react, what they might do. That is the, the differentiation that I think a lot of people miss. And that is one massive differentiation. Again, I'm a martialist, not a martial artist. 
in martialism, all war begins as a mental exercise. And we see a lot of things as war. There are different levels of war to a martialist. But most all war, actually really, I could probably blatantly say just all war starts as a mental exercise. And that mental exercise typically starts off with what's going on and who's involved. Okay. Here's what's at my disposal. What's at their disposal? What's the most logical 10 things they might do? What's the most reasonable 10 things might do? How can I shape those things to get a better advantage? And that's the game. It just starts the game of chess. Starts the game of shogi. Starts the game of, you know, pick one of the, um, go. If you've never looked up go, it's a very intense game when it comes to mental exercise. Um, you know, it starts this process and it's all a mental exercise. It's just a mental simula- a simulation. And that's what the canonical writings of Zen do. It's what the meditations of, of Stoicism does or the teachings of Stoicism to have control of that mind-body connection. Not have control over emotion just to eliminate it. No, 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 no. Because if I eliminate all of my emotion, I can't sympathize or understand someone with emotion. That's the differentiation. I think a lot of people forget that or never learn it, unfortunately. So let's continue on in our exploration here of that analogy of the mirror and how we can use that for better understanding our mind. We talked about emotion. Let's just pick a random word here. It's not so random. Meaning. I said that for a reason. Meaning is a translation. It's a decision, really. You know, decisions here also on my list. And then there's reason and logic, and they kind of all go together. So reason and logic define meaning, right? We use reason and logic to come up with meanings for things, but also there's decision, and we have to decide on the meaning of something, or, or you know, what did they really mean by that, or what was that, you know, what was that little scoff they made, or we have to decide how we take things. That's part of perspective. We have to decide the connotation that we assign to things. That all happens in the mind. So if we don't have a strong understanding of how we typically go about those things or what effects are being applied to our mind, we can't really have a strong self-awareness or a strong understanding or control over our mental health because that translation can go, oh, it can go very badly. (laughs) It can go awry very easily. It could go awry just because you're on your last, you're on your last, you know, stretch you, you just or you're on your your last straw the whatever you want to call it you've just had enough and maybe you're not aware of that you don't know what your limits are so one of the things i talk about understanding the mind is what are the limits of your mind have you explored them do you know what they are do you understand what they feel like do you understand what pushes you to one boundary or another Oftentimes there's a lot of people out there telling them like, Oh, just be happy and, you know, learn to be happy and, and, you know, have a, you know, greatness. I kind of say, fuck all that because it's, it's bad advice to my, and to me, it's bad advice. I'd rather someone learn about what makes them content and to find the middle ground than to learn what their extremes are because it's much easier to get yourself back to a content back to a middle ground than it is to get from one extreme to the other. It's like a roller coaster. Most people are on living life through a roller coaster. Huge up highs, you know, feelings of elation, 
you know, just that feeling of elation. Oh, this is amazing. I'm having the best time of my life. Oh, it's so great. And then the drop. And then the lowest lows. All the way down. Oh, everything's terrible. I used to have so much fun. I used to party all the time. Now I'm just, you know, bored at work. You know, everything sucks. That's the game of the roller coaster ride through life that most people put themselves on. Put themselves on. Because they never learn about the drive to the the amusement park. They never learn about the middle ground, the contentness. Because, again, it's easier to get from one extreme to content than it is to get from one extreme to the other. So if you're constantly in the middle, it's real easy to swing one way or the other. And you only need to go so far to really get that feeling. So, like, if you know what makes you content, it's very easy just to add a little extra to that sauce and come up with something that makes you happy. Or to understand that, oh, man, this thing's lacking some sauce. So it's making me kind of sad. That understanding of the middle ground is what a lot of people are never taught. And it's almost like it's impossible to teach because it's a translation. It happens in the mind. And this is one of the most important things I could ask someone. Again, in the intermediary, this is not really where you should start out when you're talking about self-awareness and mental health. And in fact, we're 23 episodes until I even brought it up in this podcast. When we understand the content nature of the mind, of our minds, we have a very good perspective on everything else that's happening around us. In order for a Zen practitioner to get Zen, they must understand what Zen is. Zen is a feeling of content. Zen goes a little bit farther in that idea and they deep dive into contentness and they call it emptiness. And this is my own understanding of Zen and some people would argue me on it, but I like to bring these things into a light that everyone can use. And I feel like everyone can grasp this idea. To be Zen or to be quote unquote empty is to have possibility, but also the choice to not be possible. It's the control over, does this make me sad? Does this make me happy? Do I want to allow this to make me happy? Do I want to allow this to make me sad? It's an understanding. It's a translation of both topics because they are separate. They are different. Once we think about them deeply, we understand there is a differentiation between allowing something to make you happy and understanding if something makes you happy. Because if you know, first off, if something will make you happy or make you sad, you can then control the dial from zero to 10 or break it off at 11, whatever you want to do with it. You can understand the control over that dial now. So if we just use the zero to 10 dial and we know something's going to make us sad and we know it's going to make us a five on the sad, we can maybe dial that down to a three or two, or maybe it just doesn't make us sad in general because we know it's going to. So we precognitively function ahead of time to know, oh, this is going to be rough. This is going to be tough. This is what I, 
what I'm talking about when I talk about the Buddha said life is suffering, but it's much different when you understand to choose how you suffer. That's part of the teachings, you know, when we quote that from the Buddha, a lot of people forget is the Buddha did say life is suffering in a kind of a roundabout method, but the direct translation there would be, yes, life is suffering. It's, there's all of the teachings of the Buddha tell us at the very end, kind of like the story with uh, Krishna and the prince, the Bhagavad Gita, that conversation, it's different when you choose how you suffer. It's different if you choose to suffer. Because if I know I got to go work for 16 hours, a a distinct thing that's happened in my life, maybe not in yours, but if you know you have to go to work and you really, you're not feeling great, you don't want to go, it's going to be boring, it's going to suck, but you prepare for that in the beginning by being like, all right, well, I'm going to get a good night's sleep and I'm going to wake up a little early so I can get some coffee in me. Maybe I need some caffeine. Maybe I'm just one of those people like to eat in the morning, whatever you, whatever you want to do, but you choose to not go out and party. So you're going to suffer because you, you nope, got to go to bed early because I got to get up tomorrow and I got to go to work. And I know it's going to be a long day. Maybe it's around the holidays and it's just going to suck because it's going to be super busy or whatever, you know, whatever we want to put this story. We're writing our own canonical writing. We're writing our own anecdotal story to think about. I got to go to work tomorrow. I know that's going to happen. And I got choices. I can make choices. I can go out and get drunk and, you know, wallow in the idea that tomorrow's going to suck. And then I get shitty sleep. And then I wake up groggy and tired and feel like crap, maybe with a hangover. And then I'm going to try to like throw down, you know, some Western medicine system pills and grab some caffeine and a five hour energy and all this other crap just to get through my day. Or I know tomorrow's going to suck. So I'm going to try to get to bed early. I'm going to eat a good meal before I go to bed. Maybe, you know, make sure I'm hydrated. Just get to bed early, take a shower, relax a little bit, get to bed early, get as much sleep as possible quality sleep, do whatever I can to do that. Maybe take a melatonin. I'm not a doctor. Can't diagnose for sure. I'm not telling you to do this. Maybe take some melatonin, you know, get to bed, try to wake up a little early. So, you know, I don't have to worry about being late, not, you know, traffic. Don't, I don't, I don't have to worry about that. Just give myself a little extra time, you know, maybe have something in the morning that I, I like. Maybe it's a cup of coffee. Maybe it's, you know, a yogurt, some food, you know, take my, take my vitamins, you know, just get prepared in general go my drive, get to work, get my stuff set up, do whatever I need to do. And I'm mentally prepared. I've, I've, I've done everything I could. I, I got good sleep. So I, I don't feel groggy. I feel, I feel decent. When you do that, typically what I find is that that suffering isn't as bad as it could have been. And thus you just are aware of that throughout the entire day of like, meh, it could be worse. I could be tired. Could, you know, yeah, it was a shitty day, but I was prepared for it. And you went with the idea, you went with the mentality of, okay, today's just going to suck. Oh, well, I'm just going to get through it. I've done a bunch of things to make it a little easier. Got good sleep, got the cup of coffee. I did all the things. And now it's just, eh, all right, it's meh. It, it went from, oh, this is going to fucking suck. To, eh, it's meh. I'll just get through it. Just move on. And yeah, maybe at the end it really did suck. But like, at least you knew ahead of time and you prepared for it. That is the differentiation of, yes, life is suffering, but when you choose how you suffer, there's a much different translation in the mind. Things stop being 
everything's fucking horrible and there's no way out of this. And I'm just in this deep, dark abyss. I'll never climb out of Two, Hey, rock bottom is a pretty solid ground to stand on. And I can, I can make some moves from here. I can, you know, I already know things are shitty. Okay. It doesn't take much to make things less shitty. If that's where the dial is, if that's the reference point, and that's where understanding the mind's translation and how we're translating things can make a huge difference in our mental health. And it comes from a standpoint of self-awareness when we learn, you know, we learn about memory recall. We learn about, you know, uh, things like body dysmorphia and that, that what we see in the mirror maybe not be true or, you know, we can use what we see in the mirror to make some effective changes. And, you know, I talked earlier how I'd get into this. There's mental tricks that can happen. One of those is the old adage, hindsight's twenty twenty. That's awesome. Everybody's like, oh, hindsight's twenty twenty, and they use it as a negative connotation. No, hindsight's twenty twenty. It means I can get a great lesson out of what just happened if I just spend the time thinking about it because now I have a clear picture of what happened. I know that asshole fucked me over and I shouldn't deal with people ever like, like that ever again. Awesome. Now I know that I've learned a lesson. That's great. Not hindsight's 2020. I should have known. Oh, things are shitty. No, you need to change the translation. If you're going to make any effective change whatsoever, I'm not going to sugarcoat this for you. This is what needs to happen. However you go about it, you'll figure out cause that's your job, not mine. But what I can tell you is when you make the differentiation of the translation Again, the mind, the health body, the mind body, the, the, the mind piece of the three. When you start changing the translations, you just get so much more control. And it's just, it's a snowball effect of this. You know, this is what every self-help thing out there is trying to, you know, get people to do. And I don't create a system in which to do it because I'm not one to create systems. I can just give you ideas of ways to go about it and you'll figure it out for yourself because that's the best way to do it. If you really want to enact change in your life, figure out how best it's going to be for you to make that happen. Okay. You might want to try another system or another program or somebody else's ideas. That's great. But if you don't make it yours, it's never going to work. You can go to AA meetings all you want. If you don't believe in the methodology in which they give you, it's not going to work for you. You can Get on any fad diet, any weight loss practice you you want to try. South Beach. What, I'm not saying they're bad. Just you can, it doesn't matter. You can pick any one of them. If you don't believe in the methodologies or understand the methodologies in which they're using, it's not going to work for you. So one of the me- great mental tricks you can use is that whole mirror system of the graphical user interface you're thinking about, that your mind, your CPU and RAM and all these the graphics card and all this stuff on the computer are producing, or if you want to use a different analogy, cause you don't understand computers, all the crap inside the TV, you don't know anything about creating that image on the screen. That's your mind. You don't really get it. So that's fine, but it creates this image. If you don't change or use those to your effect, you're never going to create change. You're, you're choosing change, but you have no control over the choices you're changing. So we can use tricks. You can look in the mirror and you can go, you know what, you fat piece of shit? It's time to lose weight. Because really, if you want to lose weight, that's a great place to start. Using it in the effective nature of I'm going to choose to suffer. 
you look at yourself in the mirror, because I've done this and I t- can tell you it works. I've seen other people do it. You look at the mirror and you go, you know what, you fat piece of shit. You're a fucking fat piece of shit and you need to change. Not go eat a bag of Cheetos and try to feel better about yourself because you think you're a fat piece of shit. No. Choose to understand that, you know what, I'm drawing a line in the sand. I'm saying you are fat and ugly and I don't like the way you look to yourself, not to others. But we're going to change it. Because this is the end. This is where we draw the line. We're changing it. And then understand that that could take years. doesn't matter. We've drawn a line, though, so we're going to make a change. We're choosing to change. And by doing so, we know we're going to choose to suffer. And thus, we're going to choose to suffer, and that suffering is not going to be as bad because we're choosing to do it. So we start to make little choices, little changes that turn into decisions because that's what the mind does. It makes decisions. And those decisions are... Eat less sugar. Move more. Very simple. Calories in, calories out. What effectively that does is right there starts the process of I'm not going to gain more fat. I might gain muscle at this point. Who knows? I might My weight on the scale might go up. But my fat content is probably going to go down. And my cardiovascular system is going to be more healthy because it's not trying to overload itself with all this extra crap it's got to do because I'm going to lower my sugar. Lower my calorie intake. Sugar is the easiest thing to get out of the out of the diet to do this. And then increase my movement, known as exercise, or just moving. Park farther away from work. Park wa- farther away from the house. Walk more. Take a walk. Jog in place a little bit. Swing your arms around while you're, you know, watching TV. Do some dips on the couch. Doesn't matter. You can add all sorts of things in. The process is infinitely changeable and infinitely customizable, the basics of it are, look at you in the mirror. Look at me. I'm looking at me. Not you, because I don't judge you. That's not my job. You, judging yourself. Makes the translation between what you see in the mirror and what you want to accomplish. And then uses that mirror image as the new reference point. Oh, I don't like this about myself. Okay, baseline, boom, don't like that piece. I don't like the way I react to things. I don't like my anxiety. I don't like the way I feel when I'm around others. I don't like being stuck in bed every day. I don't like whatever it is. I just use weight loss because it's something I've been through and I, I just, that's one of the ones I choose to pull out because it's easy for me to talk about. But whatever that piece is that you don't like, you then get to choose to change it. And that's where the translation starts, right there. Now you choose how you suffer because you know you're going to change it. It's going to suck. It's going to be hard. It takes anywhere from, I forget what it is. I think it's 90 days to 253 days to, ch- to change a habit, but it might only take 30 days to create one. So the m- mind is weird that way. But we're going to choose to change the translation. We're going to choose to better understand our mind. And that's when things start to be, again, remember from a martialist perspective, how my mind might, or a martialist's mind might go about it is this is waging of war. I'm going to wage war against my weight, my, my physical unhealthy weight. There's all sorts of possibilities in which I can do that. So I'm going to pick the top 10 ways that this might function and how I'm going to go about it. And then I'm going to wage war. 
and war is a mental exercise. So I need to come up with a mental simulation of what might be the things I change. And that can be, again, any number of different things or any number of different scenarios, because that's what the mind is so amazing at doing or these ideas of simulation. Now, I understand that if we're talking about anxiety, if we're talking about our mental faculties and those types of things, it might be tough to have these simulations because you might have just gotten yourself into the point, but that's where you have to just kind of be like, you know what? Boom. I'm going to try the simulations. I might not take the actions quite yet, but at least I'm going to try to simulate it. Because the weird part about simulations in the mind is they become reality. This is everything anyone's ever been taught about the secret or manifestation. Look, I know I shouldn't knock on them, but a lot of it's bullshit because they don't quite understand how it works. But it works for some people, so I can't really knock it that much because people do get great things out of it. But the idea of manifestation and those types of things are having simulations of the mind. You're creating a simulation by putting that dream car on the the cork board and looking at every every day and stacks of money and pictures of you know all these things that you want. You're simulating that idea that you will have that, and then your mind is actually filling in all the pieces that you're just not thinking about. Because our minds do this all the time. Our minds are filling in information all the time. We can see this in just the idea of how our minds translate our ocular inputs. Our ocular inputs come into the eyes. So when I'm talking about ocular sight, we see things, and I'm just talking about humans, just how our our physiological work of how this all works. We see something, it goes into our retina, flips itself upside down, through the cornea, I'm sorry, through the cornea into the retina, flips itself upside down, goes through the ocular nerve, gets reflipped upside down. So it gets flipped upside down, mirrored, reflipped upside down, and then translated into the mind. But, but there's a whole piece we don't see. Our peripheral vision is a snapshot that's added to that. And then because it's flipped up, it's sorry that yeah that still flipped, reflipped. So things are getting flipped constantly. We'll just forget about that part now because it's complicated. But our peripheral vision is actually made up of snapshots. Our our retina, our rods and cones, see different things. We have these different pieces in our eye. This is why I talked about body first because once you understand how the eye works, you can start to understand how the mind works. Real easy, well not real easy, but you can get a better understanding because. Our visual references aren't exactly what we're seeing all the time. Your peripheral vision is a snapshot. It's a slower frame of reference compared to what your visual focus is on. This is one thing we teach martialists and martial artists or just fighters in general is how to defocus your eyes. Because when you defocus your eyes, you start to take in a bunch of different information that becomes very important. Because if you focus your eyes too much, you might miss the beginning of a punch or a kick because it's in your peripheral. And because it's in your peripheral, you took a snapshot of that 
three milliseconds beforehand. So now you're three milliseconds behind of a kick that's going to take six milliseconds to finish. That's a problem when you're fighting something. This is really important when we go back to antiquity and we talk about people who are really good weapons fighters. Weapons move very quickly. And a scream stick, which is one of the systems I was taught with, a stick in the hand, it's about mm, 16 to 18 inches long, somewhere longer, 22. Depends on the person. You always want to measure hand grip, blah, blah, blah. doesn't matter. The swing speed of the arm is one speed. Because of how fulcrums work and centrifugal motion, the stick speed, the head of the stick, can be moving upwards of 100 to 110 miles per hour depending on the person. That's really fast. Think about baseball. Professional baseball, a baseball thrown by a professional pitcher can reach speeds on average of 95 to 96 miles per hour. That's crazy fast. But yet, they pick it up, they see it, they hit the ball. But it's not so much that they're focusing completely, you know, they always say, eye on the ball, eyes on the ball. When we look at it, how our visual cortexes work and how our visual representations work, learning how to unfocus the eyes gives us a better representation of what's actually going on. It gives us a better understanding of locale and ratios of like, okay, I use fighting as an example because I trained fighters and I know that more than most things. If I defocus my eyes, I can see their shoulders. I can level their shoulders and I can draw a line. And then if one shoulder drops, I know it might be moving some way. Or I can also see their hips at the same time. Because if their hips shift one way or the other, it can change if it's a kick, if that punch is going to have more power behind it than I expect. All sorts of different things change. And it just happens a little bit that I just unfocus my eyes just a little bit so that my periphery now has to pick up more information quicker. Because if I focus in on one specific thing, I'm going to lose all the other detail. That's how our, our, our minds translate our ocular cortex. That's just one sense. Then we can add in pressure changes because that's how we feel things is our core muscles feel the differentiation of pressure. And actually there's some interesting research out there about how we have the bioelectric field that's around the body and how um, atomical structures can't actually touch. So like you pinching your fingers together, your fingers don't actually ever touch each other because there's a thin little layer in between them of quote unquote bioelectric energy that keeps them from, you know, the atomical structures actually touching each other. You can go look into that. Fascinating. Again, it's all translations. It's all these, just these simulations and these, these processes happening in the mind over and over and over again. And that's just on the physical side of things. There's a whole other not seen, what we consider the other. We don't ever really pay attention to. This is where the highest level of a fighter comes from. Fighters who are like really good fighters. Or I'll make it even simpler than that because I know I talk about fighting and not everybody's into that. And even I don't like watching fights because I'm just I'm more of a pacifist. And once you've had a certain level of violence enacted upon you. It's kind of tough to watch other people have that enacted upon them, but that's just me personally. Anyway, let's take a, a really good manager, for example, or like a firefighter or, you know, someone who's just been doing something for a long time, right? 
are just skilled in it. You know, you can take the 10,000 hour rule, 10,000 hours makes you a master those types of things. Someone you maybe, someone you maybe look up to or envy or just like, Oh wow, look at their skill. That's amazing. Or, you know, like acrobats and like oh, professional sports and athletes and firefighters, even like pottery makers or painters, those who have the skill to be amazing are those who practice the most because they create that precognitive simulation. It becomes instinctual for them because it was trained that way. They've spent the time translating these things over and over and over again. This is where willpower comes to from, fortitude comes from. The person who goes to the gym regularly, all the time, gets super fit, does all that, they're the ones who spent the time simulating, well, if I don't get up today and I don't go to the gym, then I'm going to lose my gains, then I'm going to spiral downward. They have that understanding. That's where the self-awareness piece is when we talk about the mind, is simula- simulation. Self-awareness in the mind, for when we're talking about strictly just about the mind, is the process of simulation. We can simulate what's going to happen. Thus, we become aware of the outcomes and we can make choices and changes. Remember, choice begets change. We can make those decisions, which is what change. Go all the way back to episodes, uh, let's just say eight, eight and nine, choice and change. Those processes can happen due to simulation. So simulation is self-awareness when we talk about the mind, that ability to, to simulate outcomes and simulate processes. Mental health when we talk about the mind is the understanding of the interactions that happen after those simulations are played out or what's commonly referred to as action and reaction. Essentially entropy in metaphysics. They like to talk about entropy and and reverse entropy and all these things and how all these interactions work. When it comes to mental health, that idea of entropy is the mental health control point when we talk about the simulations of the mind. So first we have the simulation processes, which is self-awareness at a a functional mind level. Again, I'm just strictly talking about in the mind, the translation piece of it all. Those translations or simulations of translations have entropy. Entropy is when all the processes stop and then we have an entropy piece, which is where time as a simulation or time as an understanding chooses one direction. That's entropy. So if we pull the Jenga block out and the the Jenga tower falls, that was a point of entropy. All their points up to that had entropy there's processes happening, but entropy is really when there's just one outcome. All of the physics and all of the measures and everything has now been calculated and it happens. Reverse entropy would be reversing that, but we all know how time works in this reality we live in. So reverse entropy is really hard to come by. Not that it's not possible. There are processes of reverse entropy, but entropy of nature, which is a flow of time, specifically in one direction with a vector, 
because that's how entropy works. That's the mental health piece is understanding the entropy point. So we have the simulations, which are translations. Then we have translation. We have a translation all boils down to, and then entropy happens when all of those simulations fall away to one outcome, a single translation of possibility or however reaction is going to happen. Then we have action and reaction, which is entropy. And we're left with what that's going to do to our mental health. Will this make me happy? Will this make me sad? So the more understanding we have of the simulation of the mind and its ways it works and how we translate things, the more control we have over the outcome or entropy of the mental health state that comes after. If we understand that the pet, dog, cat, whatever, is old and has some health problems, yes, their death may be sad, but we simulated the process of knowing hey, the animal's old, it has health problems, there's a strong possibility at this point it might pass away, and thus we're prepared for the entropy of the mental health side of this is going to be sad, and I'm going to need to deal with it. So now I have the choice to beget the new of how I react to it. So going all the way back to the beginning of this episode, we have Yod, one, he, two, Val, three, he again, two twos, four. So let's run through the cycle. Yod, which again is other, that's the, the incoming information whatever begot, whatever, the start. That's the start of the flow. Something's happening. Then we have he, two, simulation. We're going to simulate something. We're going to simulate whatever this, this, all of this information coming in towards, all the information coming in towards us. We're going to simulate that. And then we're going to, simulate all, all of these different, however many process, I want to put a number on it, but I shouldn't. So just all the infinite, no, not infinite, but all of these processes. So Yod information, things coming in, processes coming in, things we need to, to, to translate to simulation of the translations. That's the first he, then Val three, that's the entropy. That's the reaction, the action to reaction, or I'm just, I should say that's kind of the action, the entropy. It's going to, it's, it's all, we simulated everything and now something occurs. Information in simulation of information and possibilities, singular outcome of possibility or nature. Now we're back to the second he, the second mental, the second translation, the second simulation. That's the break off. Of now I get to choose how I'm going to react. What reaction am I going to have? Stoic, Zen, 
national uh, huge emotional blow up downward spiral positive upward that's where we get to after all the simulations now we get to now simulate our reaction what are we going to choose to be a reaction that's why the second he or four becomes the next one because now we are sending out the information the information came in we probably had no control over any of it we simulated all the possibilities they all boiled down into something else happened, an action happened. Now we have a reaction, but we simulated all those. We chose one. Now we send out the information. Thus, starting a new inflow of information. So four becomes one. And we go through the cycle again. And again, that's the one, two, three, four in the counterclockwise. That's why I brought up in the beginning of this episode the ineffable name, Yad, He, Val, He, just saying them phonetically. And how that is the process and why it's important to understand all of those different things. And we can use tools. There's plenty of tools we can use to even think about these things. That's why I, I talk about astrology and tarot and runes or any of the mancies. Tarot is a cardamancy. You know, mancies are divination pieces. But there's tools for this. There's psychology. There's counseling. There's, there's all sorts of tools out there. Self-help videos, self-help books. Maybe this podcast, I don't know, like talking to a friend, getting advice, reading about subjects. There's all of these different tools that help us better translate things, better understand things, have better control of reaction, have better control of what happens after entropy or the direction in which entropy might go, which is another interesting world. That's the whole world of quantum physics. By the way, we've known everything there is to know about quantum physics since like the 1930s. They haven't really figured out much more since. So not exactly like we, you know, some big to do. Okay. Like give up on the quantum physics bullshit. There's a, I'm sorry. That's a soapbox. I'm going to get off of it. But going back to the things we talked about, memory, emotion, meaning, reason, logic, perspective, decisions, things I've talked about on this podcast, education, belief, language, relationships, emotions, reality, choice, change, how they correlate to each other which is ends in decision perspective, the different systems are out there, all the mystery schools, what your truth is, what your identity from there is, what depression really is just a, an intaking of information, what your thought process on death is life, how time works, thought, humanity as a whole self, what yourself is understanding your body, understanding your mind. Again, these are the intermediary pieces that I'm talking about now, all the way here in episodes 22 and 23 with the body and the mind. Even 21, we talk about self. This understanding is what gives us a better control that we can go deeper with. Because once you have that, you can then gain what I was beginning to talk about at the beginning of this podcast, and now I'm going to end with. When we talk about the yad, he, val, he, and how we have one, two, three, and four, and four becomes the next one. Then we have four, five, six to seven. Seven becomes the next one. We have seven, eight, nine, ten, and ten reduces the one because one plus zero is ten was is one. That gives us the triality. That's how we take one through ten and we make it into a three. We make it into a try. And then once we have two tries, we can add we can become a septenary. We can add that we can flip the triangle on top of itself and we get the six-pointed star. And then we can have three septenaries and it goes on and on and on. 
But that try, that three is really what we have to come back to because we have three pieces. We have the physical body, which we talked about in episode 22. We have the mind or the mental, sometimes referred to as the astral, that we're talking about here in episode 23. And then in episode 24, we'll talk about the other or spiritual or whatever name you want to get into it with it. And those three pieces each have three pieces. Because when we talk about translation, we can talk about the translation of the other to the physical, the other to the mind, or the other to the other. But it's all translational. has to happen through mind. That's why we call it astral. So the other can have astral. It can have physical. It can have other. Just like the mind can have astral, which is mind. Mind can talk to mind. It can translate to the mind. Conversation is a translation between two minds. It can also be the other. It can be the talk of or the understanding or the simulation of the other, of simply thinking about greater things. Or the physical of just walking around in everyday life and interacting physically with materium. And thus, as above, so below, the physical can have quality of mind, can have quality of other, or simply just be physical. This is what we get into when we talk about these crazy stories anecdotally in the martial arts world of people putting chopsticks through tables, people breaking bricks with their finger. That's correlation of other, but it was translated through mind and the mind body connection. And then you get into the mind other. So we have a three of a three. That's a nine. That is the hardest thing from the beginner to the intermediary for anyone to grasp is when we have to learn that there are three pieces to the three and all of them can have different paths to each other so that you can have a seven, which is a one referencing a a two, which is the correlation from the first one. And it just goes on and on and it becomes a huge string of things it gets very complicated and people like to wax poetically on. I wax poetically on. And in some cases we lose meaning because we try to translate things differently. And we try to translate things incorrectly to get a correct answer. And again, it just gets, you can just mix it up as much as you want, really. And metaphysics does that. And, and philosophy does that. And teachings in antiquity do that. The canonical writings of any... Religion do that. The canonical writings of any philosophical viewpoint do that. Is it on purpose? Who knows? I can tell you from the standpoint of the initiates, which we'll get into after we talk about other or the initiation. Yes, the mystery schools have done that. That was their goal. That is why we are where we are today. We don't know. And anyone who says we do is wrong from my viewpoint. We don't know what the mysteries are. We don't know what the infallible name is. We don't know what the specific definitions of any of these possibilities that could be the history of humanity are. We don't know what the teachings of the Atlanteans or the Luminarians or any of these other processes were because we have lost them because we are human and what we do is we hide things because we get scared or 
we worry or we get anxiety or any numeral idea of the differentiation where the translation between the body and the mind broke and we lost the connection is where you'll find the teachings of history have been hidden or been incorrectly deciphered for a reason. And it's a shame. It really is. It's a shame that in today's society, we don't understand our minds because, well, we were never meant to. No one sat us down to have this conversation or to make us think about these things. And in fact, we pushed all of the processes in which this would happen to the fringes to learn to be a stoic, to learn to be Zen-minded, to learn Ayurvedic breathing meditations and the thought processes that come from there. That an entire industry worth millions, if not billions of dollars in self-help exists. But it's a revolving door in which all of those self-help situations want you to continue to buy their books and buy their methods because they need to make more money because they're not really in the business of helping you. Where the Western medicine system is all about you staying sick by not educating you about how to be healthy. This is why it's so important to understand how your mind works. Because if you don't have the ability to simulate what could happen, you're left to the entropy of others. You're left to the decision work of others. And thus, you no longer have a one on the list. You no longer have a two on the list. You are left with three. And you can't transition to four to put out your reaction or entropy because you never had it to begin with. So you are simply left living a physical life with no hope of it being any different. And I'm here to tell you that's not true. You are translating this just as I'm speaking it. Even if you want to or not. And my whole goal here from the very beginning has always been and will continue to always be to have conversations on self-awareness, mental health, and a bunch of other shit, but specifically to do so in the hopes that will cause you to think for yourself. Whereas I define thinking as taming hindrances in neural kinetics. And that's just a fun way of talking about how our minds use these crazy electrical storms and interact with synapses and basal ganglia and our ocular function and our olfactory system and our verbal and hearing system to come up with these translations of what's really going on around us. But it's you that do that. It's not me. I just want you to do more of it and I want you to do it constantly all the time and not allow anyone else to take that away from you or to manipulate it or coerce it in any way that you don't want to allow to happen that isn't in your best interest. 
or that hurts someone else. Because that's the rule. Is you get to translate these things and come up with all these simulations and then pick the entropy that best works for you as long as it doesn't harm someone else. It's not morally or ethically wrong. And by that definition and there, that reaction, that entropy, you then get to act morally and ethically and choose your morals and ethics in which you work upon. Be it from whatever simulation you came up with or whatever background yod, one, other, you start with. It could be anything. It could even be nothing. As long as you wake up to the idea that your mind is separate from all other things and your mind is what's creating the world you live in, thus you control that world. And yes, there are outside influences every day of our life that we can't control. But we can simulate what happens when we lose that control and we can simulate all sorts of other processes using our minds, just the power of thought and conversing with one's own self, which we call consciousness. To create the idea of the outcomes that may happen and thus choose our method of reaction so that we can apply our consciousness to the world around us, which all the frivolous people out there that think they're smart want to call quantum mechanics, and thus have the reactions in which we hope to have or create the reactions that are going to happen. But it all goes through the mind. That's where it all goes. From the physical to the other and the other back to the physical, it all has to translate itself through the, the mind. That is why we have two twos, the two and the four, and how the four transitions to the next one in the sequence of the understanding of numbers through the Kabbalistic system and the first four letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Sorry, first three. Thus, all I'm asking you to do, as always, is just to spend some time thinking. Just go think about whatever you feel like thinking about. And then think about those thoughts. And then go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. It's never ending. But you get to control it. That's what, ultimately, I'm here to sell you in the very end my self-help piece that I can maybe give you is once you start to really look into all these things, you get to control it. You can talk about how someone's introverted and you can talk about someone who's extroverted or maybe even those rare individuals who are ambiverted. And it doesn't fucking matter anymore because it's their choice. It's their choice. As long as they understand. But they don't understand because someone else called them that. I call myself an introvert. I choose to be introverted. I prefer to spend time alone. I don't like large groups and crowds because it's too much for me to have to simulate to figure out what I'm doing there, what's going on, what the point is, or how the hell I can just get away from it. It's too much for me. 
Maybe that makes me a weak person. I don't really give a shit because I know I'm introverted, but I choose to be introverted. Just like I know some other people who choose to be ambiverted. They love that. They love going out and having all those mental whatever's going on. And then they just go to bed at the end of the night. Whereas I spend my entire time trying to go to sleep, picturing every interaction that happened and the entropy in which it created a new reaction. And then was that the right choice and the choice that I really wanted to have and blah, blah, blah. This is never ending. So I choose to be introverted. Not that people call me introverted and thus I am introverted. I fucking choose to be introverted. It's my choice. It's my translation. It's my yod. My he, my vow, my next he to my next yod, onward and onward and onward and onward, and I control it. And you can control yours. You simply need to choose to do so. And that all starts right in that mind of yours. So I, I, I don't even know. I beg you. I No, I just, I don't have words to express which is very odd for me. My, my entropy to that, my, my second he, my transition point to you. It's almost if I can't, I feel like this is a moment of realization that when I talk about depression and how depression is so uniquely who you are, it is your way of seeing the world. This is that point where I can't understand your depression. Thus, I can't give you the, the verbiage to tell you that you can control it. I can't do that for you. Just like you can't do that for someone else because it's your depression. It's your way of seeing the world. It's your mind. And the possessive doesn't even do it justice. This is the truest understanding of consciousness I could ever come up with and may ever come up with. This might be the it. This might be as far as I can go with it. So please do something with it. Go think. Go tame some hindrances in neurokinetics. And I'll see you on the next one when we talk about other. That's episode 24. And then episode 25 is probably going to be when we talk about uh, the initiation and the initiate schools. And I'll go from there and we'll see where this thing takes us because who knows at this point. But I, I really don't have much else for this episode. So thank you as always. I appreciate you listening. Hopefully it was of benefit to you in some way or got you to think or who knows at this point. Please go check us out at taminghindrances.com. Check out the archive. Uh, you know, I try to throw all sorts of stuff in there. I'll have to remember to put a link to the Bhagavad Gita and maybe some other canonical writings. Um, I do have some books on there about uh, from Thomas Hoover about Zen. Um, one is the Zen Experience, which is a great historical telling of how Zen came about and gives some enlightenment to Zen by nature. Um, I believe I have Marcus Aurelius's memoirs on there, his meditations for those who want to check out the Stoicism. But just, you know, look farther than Marcus Aurelius because that, that one's a given on the list. But Greek Stoicism, which teaches Greek retroduction. Um, I might have to throw a link in there. Uh, or, you know what? I'll even throw it out there on the archive. Again, at TamiHendrances.com. Check out Douglas Adams and The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy because there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. And it's an interesting method when you learn that 
he came up with all that after he got really, really high in a field and was staring up at the universe and was thinking, man, there should be a guide to how to hitchhike yourself through uh, the universe. And he came up with some really great stories from that. That was his translation. Take care. Thanks for listening. Come check us out at taminghindrances.com for show notes, links, resources, and more. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, RSS, or your preferred platform. If you leave us a spiffy review, we might just mention it on the show. Now go be awesome. And just remember to breathe.